This morning we're reading 1 Kings chapter 19 from verses 1 to 18. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bed some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the, earthqu- after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. Now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, appoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also appoint Yehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and appoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Behola, to succeed you as prophet. Yehu will put to death anyone who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Yehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Thanks, Elaine. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we come to your word, and it is your word. And this morning, we would pray that you would renew us in it. Amen. If we were in church this morning, no doubt someone would have said to you, how's things? And if we were in church this morning, in usual times, perhaps many folk would have said, fine, thank you very much, how's things with you? Fine. Of course, we can't do that. 
Um, we can't do it because we can't meet. But another reason we can't do it is the one thing that we're not right now is fine. If some of us were honest with the question of how's it going, the answer is that we're stressed out our minds. It's traumatic just now. There's homeschooling. There's the stress of going shopping. There's trying to readjust to work in these days, and it's getting too much for us. And for others, or perhaps for all of us at the same time, there would be that crushing sense of isolation, of loneliness. I, I, I was sitting last night preparing for this, and it just had that huge sense of how much I'm missing not being able to gather with folk. And it's not fine. How's it going? I suppose the other thing about that question is, as Christians, it, it brings a spiritual question, doesn't it? How is it going with our faith? Where are our prayers just now? Where is God in our lives just now? These are hard questions. And that brings us to the story of Elijah that we've been following for the last three weeks, although for Elijah it would be the last three and a half years. It's been a mixture, his story of loneliness, of wandering by brook and by ravens and Zarapeth and some of the, the journeys that he's made in his own, particularly in chapter 17. And then last week it went to the opposite end of the scale, as like it is for us. It was, it was absolutely frantic. He was up on top of the mountain with the 400 prophets and the, the two shrines and the fire from heaven and the action and then the rain coming, then running after the king and so much going on. And then we come to this reading today and I would invite you just to, to read it again yourselves. If you're on the YouTube channel, you can pause it and just read it again before we go on. It's a strange story because it's such a contrast to what came with the frantic story last week. It begins when the queen Jezebel sends a, a message to Elijah. And the message in verse 2 basically says, I'm going to get you. You might have thought that a man who'd just seen off 450 prophets of Baal almost single-handed, who'd seen God bring fire from heaven, who'd seen the strength of God sending the rain might have blown off a threat from one single woman. What are you going to do? But no. For Elijah that morning, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Elijah just folded at that point. He, he ran away. He was fearful. He was full of self-pity. He was despairing. He was not, as we shall see, entirely rational in his response. He even found himself contemplating his own death. Do you have that point, that breaking point, where the straw breaks the camel's back and finally everything goes wrong? As I was reading about this chapter, I, I, I was reading the, what some of the psychologists have made of it. They've seen in the, the signs of Elijah here in this part the really the burnout of stress. Mental and spiritual exhaustion, perhaps even clinical depression and suicidal thoughts. Brought me to that expression that we often use in these days concerning mental health, that it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be fine. One of the, the good things in our generation is we've got much better at being able to talk about our mental states, our mental health. We're much better at asking people to reach out and, and look for help to admit that we're not coping. But here's the thing. 
in this old, thousands of years old text from the Bible. It's a message from Scripture itself that it's okay not to be okay. Elijah is one of the giants of faith in the Bible. James calls him a man of prayer as he remembers him praying and the rain coming. Jesus, when he went up the mountain of transfiguration and saw two great figures that were to represent the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, saw Moses and Elijah as if he was in the top two of the top ten of biblical figures, a superstar of the Bible. And yet this whole chapter, chapter 19, lets us into a secret. Elijah was not okay. Whatever else was going on, Elijah found himself in a very dark place. And it was all about him and his life before God. Elijah, as it were, had been accomplishing so much up that mountain. If anyone had seen him up there with the prophets and up there with the fire from heaven and up there pronouncing to kings that rain would come and not would come, it would have looked like this was a spiritual giant. And yet I suspect the truth was Elijah had been running on empty and probably for a while. You know what it is to run on empty? Spiritually, emotionally, mentally. The thing about running on empty is all us drivers know is, is that you've done it quite often and, and you often get away with it. You, you manage to get through to the next petrol station. But the problem with running on empty is you get away with it until you don't. And Elijah, in chapter 19, got to the point that he couldn't. Often the Christian life is a bit like that. It's spinning plates, it's doing stuff, it's doing activities, and sometimes managing those things in our own strength, or so we think, trying to cope with everything that's thrown at us, trying to be that vision of success that manages all the things that are given us, and then some trigger, some silly thing is said, somebody says the wrong thing, somebody gives you that last task, and suddenly all the plates collapse and it stops, and it's not okay. That's what we find in these verses. Elijah is suddenly very human, very broken, and very afraid. Verse 3 says he receives the, I don't know, the email from Jezebel as it was. He is afraid and he runs for his life. And it's interesting what the Bible says if you look at this. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba in Judah he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom brush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. What's Elijah doing here? What's his response to this stress and this, this message from Jezebel? The first thing to notice is this. He leaves his servant. And he goes to Beersheba. Now, the significance of Beersheba is that Beersheba is right down at the bottom, the south end of God's, work, of God's land, right at the bottom of the promised land. 
And he goes to Beersheba, and then he goes another day's journey south into the wilderness. What is he doing? He is leaving his servant, his, his one true companion, and then he is moving right out of the place of God's people so that he is totally alone there sitting under the tree in the desert. You see what he's doing? He's completely cutting himself off from all human support. Instead of going to his friends and saying, hold me up, pray for me, support me, I'm having a tough time, let me tell you how it is. He's telling everybody, I'm fine up the mountain, and then he is running away to a place where he wallows in self-pity and despair. Now, I suspect as we begin to look at that, we begin to see ourselves. What do we do when things are tough? Do we go looking for help? Do we go looking for support? Do we phone a friend? Or do we run away and cut everybody off because we don't want anyone to see what's going on and wallow in it ourselves, shutting ourselves away? The teenager goes to the room. Elijah finds a tree, a solitary broom tree, and there he sits. And the despair can be seen here. I've had enough. We see it even more in a little speech that Elijah gives twice in this passage. Here it is here. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. You can see the self-pity, the paranoia, the persecution complex, the complete emptiness of Elijah here. I suspect, though, Elijah's actually been feeling like that for a while. Because this little prayer literally says, I've been busy. I've been spinning plates, and it's all depended on me. He feels as if the whole world has been on his shoulders, as if it's all depended on him, as if he's the only one who can do it. It's like that vision from Greek mythology of Atlas, you know, the Greek god who had the whole world on his shoulders and held the whole thing up. Do you know what it is to feel like that? As if everything is depending on you. The minister that's trying to hold the church together. The leader that thinks the whole organization depends on them and whether they'll keep it together. The mother who thinks she's the only person that can hold the family together. The parent who's trying to do everything for the children at school and, and, and just is struggling. As if everything depends on me. Of course, this story tells a different story altogether, doesn't it? Who stopped the rain? Was it Elijah? Who sent the raven? Was it Elijah? Who brought the fire on Mount Carmel? It wasn't Elijah. The center of Elijah seems to be all that Elijah does, all Elijah's work, all Elijah's ministry, all Elijah's coping, and it's as if God has somehow been pushed right out of the picture pushed right out of the picture. To go back to Elijah's little speech, one of the things about this as you read it is that it's nonsense. 
the Israelites have rejected your covenant. That's not what had happened. If you read back in the previous chapter, do you remember when the fire came from heaven, all the Israelites shouted, God is our God. We are for him. They renewed the covenant. They renewed the covenant and they dealt with the prophets of Baal. And then he goes on, the Israelites have put all the prophets to death. Well, for a start, the Israelites didn't do that. That was Jezebel's doing. And secondly, she had failed. Remember the story? Obadiah had hidden a hundred prophets. And at the end of this chapter, God will tell Elijah there's 7,000 more. But at that moment, Elijah's not thinking straight. He's got caught up in his work and what he's doing and trying to hold the whole thing together. And the tank is empty spiritually. And suddenly the whole weight of the world that he's got in his shoulders has made him collapse and fold into hopeless despair. So how does God respond? It's important to notice this. God doesn't argue with Elijah. He doesn't point out all the things that he's got wrong. He doesn't try to reason. There's not much point in trying to reason when someone is emotional and upset. Instead, God says in verse 5, get up and eat. And in verse 6, he looks round and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals. You can just taste that this morning. And a jar of water. One of the things you'll notice if you look back on these chapters 17 to 19 is there's an awful lot of eating going on. God continually is providing for Elijah. He provided through the ravens. He, did, he provided through the widow. A lot of eating going on. God looking after Elijah. Like those verses in the hymn which says, Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his arms he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Notice here, God's tenderness. Someone asked me yesterday what verse in Scripture most spoke to me of the hope of heaven. It was a strange question to be asked. And I thought for about it for a bit. And I eventually thought, you know, the verse that speaks to me most of my hope of heaven is, is this verse. It's John 21, verse 9. And it's a verse where Peter comes ashore after the resurrection and there is Jesus standing by a charcoal fire cooking fish and bread. Now you might think I've got food in my mind but food matters because it says something about God's love, about God's care, about God knowing what that we need. When I go to see families after a bereavement I'm, I'm always very careful not to offer too much psychological advice because I'm, I'm not a counselor. But I find myself saying this very often to them. Are you eating? Have you had food? Have you made sure one another have had food? God tenderly dealing with Elijah's basic needs. Of course, there's a message in God providing that food, and it's this that's been coming right across these whole chapters. It's, it's simply this. Do you trust me? I will give you what you need. I will provide. 
just as we pray, give us today our daily bread, where we realize our dependence on God, because that's Elijah's problem here. He stopped depending on God. He started depending on what he can do and what he can achieve. And then God asks twice Elijah that simple question. What are you doing here, Elijah? How did you get here? And Elijah replies again with that that little speech. I've been very zealous for the Lord. The people have forgotten you. I'm the only one left. I'm doing it all alone. And we can see in that speech, it's still coming through. Elijah's sense of egotism, of paranoia, of pessimism, of self-justification, of superiority, as if he's holding the whole world up. I'm indispensable. Elijah has forgotten something, though. Something very basic, but very liberating. God doesn't need you. That sounds a shocking thing to say, but it's, it's quite clear in Scripture itself. God doesn't need you. He chooses to use you. He invites you, but he doesn't need you. Jesus said it in that verse from John, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do Nothing. You know, it's good to have burdens on us. It's good to feel real compassion for the world around us, for the poor, for our family, for our church, for the things that are important. But it should drive us to trust in God and to pray to him, not to try to hold up everything ourselves. One of the things that was said to me when we trained for the ministry, which was always very useful, is to remember this. The church already has a Messiah. It doesn't need another one. And it's not you. The world already has a Savior. And it's not you. And when you realize that and you turn to God, then you are set free from having to hold everything together, hold everything up and pretend that you are coping It's interesting in these days, as God has taken away from us so much of the church life that we rely on so much, so much of the church life that we're involved in is that those of us who are very involved in the church suddenly find that we have no organizations to run, we have no duties to do, we have no meetings to attend. And an invitation to stop thinking it's all about the stuff we do. You know, This is where some very basic theology begins to set us free. Two things which our Reformed faith really expresses to us. And one is that God is completely sovereign. Everything is in his hands from the beginning to the end. In fact, the Reformers went so far about the sovereignty of God that sometimes people were saying, well, is there any part for us in this at all? God has the whole thing decided from beginning to end. Now, there's all sorts of problems with that, but one of the things it liberates us from is thinking it's all about us and what we can do. He has the whole world in his hands from beginning to end. So feel free in that. And the second thing our Reformed faith teaches us is that we are justified by faith in him and not by works. And that matters so much as well because it's not all about what we do. It's about trusting 
in what he has done. And that sets us free. The father of faith in the Bible is often described as being Abraham. Abraham, who was given this amazing promise that through him all the nations that would be blessed. Abraham, who was given this amazing promise that he would be given the promised land. He would have so many descendants, you wouldn't be able to count them, was the promise that was given to Abraham. And yet think about it, when Abraham died, he only had one son. And he had absolutely no land. In fact, he had no land to the level he had to buy a a cave in order to bury his wife because he had nowhere else. He'd achieved in his life, in one sense, very, very little. But he trusted in God. And that's all that mattered. This passage, in the end, is slightly unresolved. God takes Elijah to Mount Horeb or, or Mount Sinai. It's the place in the wilderness where Israel had come and found God and been given the Ten Commandments. And when they'd come there, the the mountain had shaken with an earthquake. There'd been fire on the top of it. There'd been smoke and clouds and real sense of the presence of God. And Elijah is shown all that as he sits in his cave. The mountain trembles, the earthquake, the wind, the fire. But all Elijah does is sit in his cave rehearsing his little speech about how he's been holding everything up. He's not impressed by that at all but in the end of the passage God sends him back but as God sends him back and recommissions him for the work he says something else he says you don't go alone Hazael you will announce as a king Jehu will be another king. Elijah, Elisha will be another prophet. And in fact, there'll be 7,000 folk going with you. You were not alone, Elijah. You were never alone. It was always my work, and I have lots of people to share it with you. Know that you're not alone. A number of years ago, Elaine and I agreed to run a a parenting course for folk that are struggling to work out what it meant to be a Christian parent. I have to say I was slightly terrified in taking the course because I've had theological training and biblical studies and done all sorts of degrees and things like that. But the one thing about parenting is that nobody gives you a lesson on it beforehand. There are no qualifications. And I was terrified that folk would look at the minister and think he had some sort of answers. Well, Not at all. But the great thing about the course was not what we learned. It was that the first time we met, the material encouraged us to tell one another how we'd failed as parents. To admit our vulnerabilities. And it was as we did that together that it began to open things up and bring encouragement. It's okay not to be okay. And it's okay to admit that. Because at the heart of the gospel message is that we are not capable, but he is. We are not faithful, 
but he is. We are not strong, but he is. We are not all powerful. We do not have all the answers. We have not got all the competencies, but by gosh, our God does. Jesus is the Savior. And this isn't just good preaching or good theology, or it's also good psychology. Because it tells us no matter how much we fail or flop or screw up or burn out or think we can't cope or don't succeed or get beaten, we're utterly secure. Because we have the promises of God. We have a hope in Christ that cannot be taken from us. And we have a God that deals tenderly with us even when we've lost the plot. And we have a God that surrounds us with brothers and sisters who share the frailty and the feelings with us, but through whom his spirit moves. Amen.